Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. All right. You know what they call a podcast in France, Steve? Le podcast. This is the 25th anniversary of Pulp Fiction. Here we are. We're on In the Can. We're back. And we're going to have a big episode for y'all. Pulp Fiction coming up. Miramax Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. again it's the 25th fucking anniversary of quentin tarantino's pulp fiction it was released 25 years ago in a month of september premiered at the Cannes film festival became an overnight sensation in the indie film scene and now we're here to talk about it i'm here with my friend steve it's been a while man what have you been up to besides uh you know getting married and shit oh man you just took my ammunition i just got married and shit sam oh cool yeah it was pretty cool yeah yeah my best man really they dropped the ball on the uh, on the best man speech, though. But yeah, you know, I heard he made it into way way more of a speech instead of like a toast. But kind of made it about him. I mean, that's classic him. It is classic him. He gave a really really cute attempt at some Spanish. It was nice. Everybody really enjoyed it. People love the word cute. You know, that's all. It's not condescending or anything like that. Uh, let me say this movie is one of the reasons we became good friends and now have been friends for the better part of a decade, more than sure. a decade. Uh, it's one of those, and I'm sure it's the same for you, I'll get along with this person movies. You know, it's a, it's sort of a, hey, do you like Pulp Fiction? Or if it ever comes up organically in a conversation where they will quote or reference it, it's always like, oh, this, this person I will be cool with, at least going forward. Third movie I watched with my now wife. It's a oh, screener. Yeah. You use yeah. it as a screener. Yeah. If, if, you know, you get no reaction out of somebody that watches Pulp Fiction or you can't. I guess my bar is if I can't have at least a 30-minute post-Pulp Fiction conversation about the movie after watching Pulp Fiction, then it's not going to work. That's they're not in your inner circle. No. Right. They're, 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 you, know, you keep them at, at arm's distance. 
Um, but Nicole otherwise, Dewan. keep him back in Russell's old room in the bottom of the pawn shop. But you know, otherwise, uh, oh, I'm going to come hot with all the references here. You know, oh, keep the references going. All right, Don't worry, go. I've got a, I've got a, some uh, Samuel L. Jackson uh, impressions going too. Don't worry, those will those will pop up throughout. Example. Uh, <laughs> check out the big brain hombre. Here's my motherfucker. Everybody listening has just turned off. <laughs> like I'm great. I get to listen to 45 minutes of two guys, two, quote, two white guys <laughs> doing doing black guy impressions. Yeah, good. Uh, all right. So, when Pulp Fiction thundered into theaters, Steve thundered. Uh, Stanley Crouch of the Los Angeles Times, one of the big critics, uh, called it a high point in a low age Time magazine. You may have heard of it. Said it hits you like a shot of adrenaline straight to the heart. Uh, as we know, that's complete reference. And Entertainment Weekly, Owen Gleiberman, who's still reviewing for them, said it was nothing less than the reinvention of mainstream American cinema. So mm. insane accolades come, come in. The movie gets rave reviews. When was the first time that you saw Pulp Fiction? Set the tone for however old you were and where you were and what you thought of it when you saw it. Sam, I think the first time I really saw Pulp Fiction was probably with you. I definitely watched it with my dad at some point. When I was like 11 or 12, and like I didn't get any of the references. I don't know what the fuck a gimp was. Like there is a, a whole lot of backstory and cinematography and clever dialogue that was just whooshing over my head. So I don't remember a whole lot about it. I just know that I watched it when I was a child. But when I started to actually understand the movie, I uh, started to pick it apart and understand that it's a conversational movie. Uh, that was definitely with you. Probably at Minders, I would imagine. The apartment on Minders. Maybe earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those movies that even now when I rewatch it, and I've seen it, I don't know, probably 50 times, you know, you, you as you get older, di- different things mean stuff to you at the time. And I think it'll continue to be that way. Um, the first time I saw this movie, I went on like a little Quentin Tarantino tweet diatribe because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood just came out. So I was Still thinking about my anymore. kind of history with Quentin. Yeah, well, we'll that, that'll be another podcast for another day. Um so uh, Kill Bill came out in 2003 and I couldn't see art in movies at the time. My parents were like super strict. And naturally that made me want to see all that stuff even more. You know, I was 13 and um, I don't know. I read a review in the local newspaper, the commercial appeal for Kill Bill, because back then there was no Rotten Tomatoes. You know, it's crazy to think about how even like 15 years ago, shit was wildly yeah. different. Uh, you had to read your local critics reviews of movies to to like essentially inform you about what was good and what wasn't so and it happened to be that i kind of like this guy and his opinions typically so he gave kill bill four star and said this guy quentin tarantino another kind of weird unique movie this time he tackles the you know the samurai kung fu flick genre um he's the writer of kill bill and i was like oh kill bill what's that or uh, pulp fiction and so i watched kill bill with my dad and as you can imagine uh just envision that because my mom made me watch it with my dad uh, it was really weird and awkward, but I was like, this is fucking awesome. The way these guys talk, I want to talk like this. Like the, the way that they know they're omni omniscient about all pop culture. They're all basically the same person. Uh, but, but they, yet they they seem individual. Um, you know, that each person is so witty. They're just like riffing back and forth, but it's like in the real world, that's never the case. But I was like, fuck yeah, I got to watch all this guy's shit. And that summer I had gotten a blockbuster movie pass. Blockbuster. Uh, it was like, yeah, yeah, little flashback there for you. It was you could get like an all you can watch movie pass, and my parents both worked that summer, so I was home alone. So they got me a movie pass. That was my summer of like movie what was education. The next Quentin Tarantino so movie you watched after Pulp Fiction. Now that after your radar Pulp Fiction, was up. Uh, so I watched Kill Bill first, then Pulp Fiction, then, then Jackie, Jackie Brown. Brown. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So 
But Pulp Fiction came, my friend Mitch's house, uh, my friend Mitch, who is now literally, uh, I say this, hope he's listening. Uh, shout out to you, Mitch. Uh, he's now a neo-Nazi. Um, I, and literally. I yeah, that's going around. Yeah. Or he was. He was okay. part of the Brotherhood. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, so shout out, Mitch. Do not appreciate your politics, but do appreciate the times we spent. Like we American 13. X neo-Nazi? Uh, he, yeah, like, yeah, like legit wears like, oh. yeah. Like, I don't know if he has a swastika tattoo, but he wears the shit and, like, posts, like, interesting wow. Instagrams with captions that are less Man, than not racist. If, if this so, isn't true, yeah. uh, this could be damning podcast material. Yeah, tough beat for Mitch on this podcast, but, um, you know, sure. hey, that's what happens. So he, his parents let him watch whatever. Yeah, yeah his, his parents let him watch whatever. And so he had Pulp Fiction. He had the 2004 DVD re-release box set. I don't know if you remember, it slid in, it had Uma Thurman on it. Like it had this little slit on the front and it had Uma's face and you could slide it out and see the whole like the poster of her right, laying right, on the bed right, smoking right, the right. cigarette or whatever. And it was the 10 year re-release. So it came out in 2004. And so Mitch had that. We watched it on his little shitty TV that was a, like a TV with a DVD sure. player built in, like a little small 18 inch TV in his RV. room. And and we were sitting on his bed and I remember I didn't say a fucking word to him the whole time. I was like, what is this? Like, I, this is like, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. Whatever it is. I didn't know I needed it. And, uh, so I immediately went and like to Best Buy and bought it without <laughs> my parents knowing. Uh, and then that summer I just watched all Quentin stuff. But like, like I said, I mean, these guys in these movies and Quentin's stuff is like, it's just the way, it's just a cool way to be, you know, it's there. It's, it's like, these guys are the coolest people in the world, even yeah. though they're awful. Uh, the things they do are awful. They're criminals, but they are still regular people. And I don't know. I'd never seen anything like it. So I have a very distinct memory of watching that with Mitch. I remember in eighth grade or ninth grade or so, we were in class and a uh, a teacher referenced like a TV show that was on. Uh, it was some Christian TV show on like ABC Family. And they asked Mitch, my friend, they were like, no, it wasn't Seventh Heaven. It was a movie. What if God was one of us or something like that? So uh, I don't know. And so she asked Mitch, and she goes, hey, uh, you've, you've seen that show. Like, you've seen that TV show. And he just, like, deadpans at her. He goes, I don't watch TV. Like, uh, John Travolta from Pulp Fiction. And, like, I just immediately started laughing. And, like, no one else laughed. But he, like, straight up deadpanned her. And she got attention <laughs> for that. But so anyway, short little uh, Mitch and I story from junior high. Um, what, so what's, what's the meaning of the movie to you? You know, what's, uh, why do you like, it? I think the point that you're getting on there, Sam, you felt like when you watched Quentin movies, as kind of aerial to Pulp Fiction, that it was actually talking to you, right? That it was something you'd never seen anything like that before. I like, we're going to get into, um, Avery, I think a little later in the podcast, but I like a quote that I was kind of learning a little bit more about him because I didn't actually know too much about his history. And he has a really nice quote about Pulp Fiction. He says, in some ways, I think Pulp Fiction hurt cinema in a very, very minor, small way. It did a massive amount of good, but it also made it impossible to make a movie even remotely like it without somebody comparing it to Pulp Fiction, which I think is truth. Like, it's a line in the sand. It's uh, the type of um, movie that can't be replicated anymore because it's so original. Um, but at the same time, it lifted a bar in my mind, at least, that if I'm not intrigued throughout the majority of the movie, that it's not that good of a movie to me. And it, outside of that, it just needs to like have a crutch of special effects or action or something along those lines. If I can't be hanging on essentially every single word of the dialogue, um, 
I don't know. It's just not, it's not, there's too many good movies out there, Sam. I think that's what it means to me. Hmm. Yeah. And, and it, it inspired like a ton of that mid to late nineties was just a series of Quentin Tarantino ripoffs. It was everyone yeah. trying to do what he does. It was, you know, like all of a sudden every character in every movie was a wise guy. They knew a shit ton about movies. Like, like they had an encyclopedic knowledge of film. They could reference right. some Pam Greer, black stipulation movie from the seventies, just as easily as they could talk about like every starting pitcher for the Yankee. You know, they, they do everything like, right. because Quentin Tarantino feels like he knows everything. So he writes all of his characters as if, they know everything he does. I wonder how so, much Aaron Sorkin and Quentin Tarantino are like in terms of just the way they write, or like because like Aaron, the way that you were describing that reminds me of like Aaron Sorkin characters. Yeah, people Red, that like have this dialogue. Like, yeah, yeah like, man, yeah. and have like this obscene amount of information about every unrelated topic out there. Right, and can like just draw like a random word from a fishbowl and talk about it for twenty minutes and make it sound interesting somehow. Yeah, Tarantino. Yeah, that's that's a that's not inaccurate. Yeah, well, that's the thing is he takes the low, he mixes the high with the low. You know, as easily as these two dudes, you know, our characters Jules and Vincent would talk about eating a pussy. You know, they they would then like they would use words like it behooves oneself or what you know like they would they would use certain words that that he does that. That's sort of his the Tarantino dialogue of clarity. Yeah, exactly. so Quentin Tarantino, interesting guy, born in L.A., parents divorced. Uh, as a child of divorce, I'm sure that you you might uh, uh, empathize with this. He, I don't he want moves- to talk about it, Sam. Thanks. Oh, sorry, man. Sorry, man. Um, so, yes, yeah, so how do you feel? What's your relationship with your dad like? Anyway, so he moves to Knoxville. Do you know this? He, uh, I did know this. Yeah. I, didn't actually, I, I, uh, I skimmed too much. I thought he was born in Knoxville. I didn't catch the L.A. Yeah, he moved to Knoxville for a year when he was, like, younger with his grandparents. Uh, he moves back to L.A. to live with his, uh, his mom. And stepdad now. Stepdad starts taking him to movies. He's like seven, drops out of high school, never gets a high school diploma, doesn't have a college degree, uh, and he wants to be an actor. So, but he works, he has like a total bump. Like he gets no gigs, he has no work, he's not a good actor, uh, but he has this like insane knowledge of film. So he works at Video Archives uh, in Long Beach, California. It's a video store. And he meets Roger Avery there. They're both just nerdy video clerks, as you you could just imagine. Like, and you walk in. made a movie about that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, in fact, the same year that uh, the Pulp Fiction came out. But yeah, they're basically those guys. I mean, the, the, they're very similar. You know, they're they're debating like the intricacies of like how many stormtroopers died on the Death Star and you know, shit like that. That um, you know, there's there. He said they would put on film festivals in the store. He would like have a Martin Scorsese shelf, and every person that would walk in, he'd say, "Hey, have you seen the Scorsese shelf? Like, th- this is my favorite one. No one ever talks about this movie. Everyone always talks about like Taxi Driver, but you need know, to watch Mean Streets." And then he'd go on this huge diatribe, like one of his characters would, about why Mean Streets is Scorsese's best movie. He like he's just like the most opinionated motherfucker. And in any interview you listen to him, he's completely positive. The way he's saying is God's truth. And I mean, that's what, but that's all of his characters talk too. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting, like sort of beginning. So he, he, he writes true romance. He writes, um, a movie called my best friend's wedding, which actually like got made, but it's like a real small black and white, the print of that burned up in a fire. So you can't even see it anymore. Damn. Like there's like, there's clips on YouTube, but you can't find it. Cause it wasn't ever digitized. Um, and then he, he, sell, he eventually writes that you Quentin Tarantino has a copy. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. He claims that it was, you know, burned. But anyway, so he sells Reservoir Dogs and directs it. Uh, he makes 50K from Reservoir Dogs. And then everyone, 50K? Reservoir Dogs puts him on the map. 
50k yeah low yeah. budget dude i mean he makes as, as the director he makes 50k uh and just the fact that he even got it made the fact that he got the budget to make that's the my movie. favorite quentin tarantino uh, movie yeah. wow so he uh, that more on that later so he has the 50k from that and then his producer lawrence bender um He's like, hey, I'm developing the script. This is what the idea I have. I have these ideas, these three crime stories, the shit you've seen forever. Like, boxer throwing the match. You got the two hitmen on the way to do a job. You got the one hitman taking out the big man's wife. Shit you've seen millions of times. But he says, but I got this different take. I got, I got like, what happens before the hit, you know, in the drive there? Like, what, like what happens after the boxer throws the match and he's being pursued? Um, and all that sort of stuff. And he says, like, I just wanted to tell these stories that I feel like had been told a million times, but from my perspective... And uh, has been uh, Lawrence Bender says, okay, well, I'm going to fucking shop this and goes to TriStar and gets the funding for it. So they're like, all right, Quentin, go write your script. So he goes to Amsterdam. He like Love packs it. a suitcase uh, and, and flies off to Amsterdam to the land of legalized marijuana and prostitution to write his American masterpiece. He buys a bunch of those school notebooks, those like journals, and he's going to handwrite it in there. And he holes up in a hash bar and drinks 12 cups of coffee a day. He lives right off the river there in Amsterdam. Um, and, and he says he spent his entire morning writing. Um, he claims that it was not about the Amsterdam sort of vices, but I, I probably would beg to differ based on some of the discussions in the movie of Pulp Fiction about Amsterdam. Um, so eventually the Weinsteins, you know, he writes the script, comes back, uh, and the Weinsteins, and, and which kind of has not aged well, because Harvey Weinstein, of course, came under the Me Too fire, and his was like bad. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, like, uh, you know, there's varying degrees of severity of these things. And his was like years of abuse to all these like actresses and stuff. Um, so anyway, like kind of tough, kind of tough. The Harvey Weinstein played a big part in this, but we can sort of gloss over that. Weinstein reads it and, and uh, it's like on a plane. He's like, what is this? The fucking telephone book and uh, reads it on the plane. And he says he reads the first scene. He calls the uh, Quentin's agent and says, this is for fucking brilliant. Does it stay this good? Then he reads the rest and he says, wait a minute, you killed the main character in the middle of the movie. Then the Quentin's agent was like, just keep going, just keep going. I promise. And then, uh, and then he says, the next call I got from Harvey, Harvey says, start negotiating. He says, I'm going to sell this shit for a million fucking dollars or like whatever, a billion fucking dollars. And then he says, hurry up. We're making this movie. So it immediately gets the funding because I can't imagine no one ever read shit like this before. No, no doubt. No doubt, man. I know I shouldn't be focusing on this particular part. But I want to know what the what the hell was going on in Harvey Weinstein's plane when he was reading that shit. I bet you some bad shit was happening on that plane while this while that script was being read. Oh, uh, you mean just like his debauchery type shit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I wonder how. I mean, so many scripts have been read on planes. That's like usually when you get a producer's, you're like, oh, you're about to get on a three hour flight. Well, I just happen to have this script. You know, you can. Oh, you can <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like exactly. So. Um, it gets the, you know, it gets the green light and, and Harvey shops. It eventually gets, um, gets a, uh, $8 million budget, um, 5 million of which goes to pay the actor's salaries. And then the other three, everyone else and all the camera work and everything. And it went on to gross 200 million at the box office, making it the most successful indie film of all time. Uh, and, and then started the, uh, I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know what would have taken it up. I don't either. Nothing so, wants to be the one that took away the title from Pulp Fiction. Right. So then we got just more facts on this movie. And feel free to throw out some trivia if you want right now about things you uncovered as you started to look into this movie. Well, yeah, I liked what I want to go back a little bit to what you were talking about with his pitch. So what was this producer's name? Lawrence Brendan? Bender. 
Bender. I like, did you yeah. know he was in the movie? Yeah, he plays the fucking yuppie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of you fucking yuppie scum. I love yeah, that. I love it. He has the long hair. Like, who, I never would have thought if you did a lineup of characters in that movie. Who's the producer? <laughs> yeah, that's true. What? You know, Roth probably just like went extra ham on him because oh, he knew no he was a producer and probably just totally riffed that line. Yeah, no question. Yeah, you labeled him. He was like, I'm like, I'm a future label you on IMDb as mm. stupid hippie, long haired guy. <laughs> I love that. No, I want to know a little more about the backstory of the creation of Pulp Fiction because what you described to me was a little different from what I understood. Like, where was Avery in all of in in that conversation? Because my understanding was that like Pulp Fiction was pieced together from various scenes that the two of uh, of those two directors, Quentin and Avery, had always wanted to work into films but never had the opportunity to do so. Like, does the name? Yeah. And what do you know about that? Yeah, there's just a bunch of like, so it kind of began this sordid relationship between him and Roger Avery, which, you know, Roger Avery, of course, is the co-writer of Pulp Fiction. The, the ability to put that on your fucking resume is, I mean, won an Oscar right. for it and is a huge deal. But so there's like kind of differing stories. And the main story is that they each had this idea to do these three crime stories. And their original plan was for Quentin wrote the first one, the um, big man, Mia Wallace. Vincent Vega date. And then Roger Avery had the idea for the boxer and the gold watch. Right. And then the third idea, they were going to have another person come. Yeah. The the third idea, they were going to have someone else come in and write, but then they didn't. So Quentin ended up writing the third story, the the wolf story. And um, ultimately when it came out of the writing of the script, Quentin says, I wrote the script. Roger had the idea for the gold watch, like the general plot outline. But when it comes to like the writing, I wrote the dialogue. I basically wrote it. Right. And Roger Avery says, well, no, like I came up with this and I, I played just as much a role in this as you did. Didn't he? Uh, he took home an Oscar just like Quentin did, did he? He did. Yeah. Uh, Quentin so tried to get him to. What's he complaining about? And he's fine. Uh, I think he just like kind of wants more like notoriety in it. And, and, but if you, you look at the rest of their careers, yeah, right? Like, come on. That's not. Nice. I mean, you, you know who wrote the fucking movie. Like, yeah. uh, but, you know, like, so that, that kind of was a weird, puts a weird asterisk on like this movie. Right. And, and sort of their relationship. But, um, so that was like an interesting, weird wrinkle there for the development of it. But there's a bunch of fucking fascinating casting what ifs in this movie. Like that, oh, that I like, couldn't go uh, over it. When I got to, uh, I'm pretty sure I saw Nicolas Cage on the list at one point. <laughs> I was like, all right, I'm done with this. There was too many. Well, there was the a huge list. list. That yeah, there was a huge that that whole list. Apparently, a leak, a leaked thing. But uh, the biggest one I think is Daniel Day Lewis is Vincent Vega. Can you imagine that? That was completely that's legit. Completely different movie. Like, so do you think though? Yes. Yeah, are you how? kidding me? Like, no. Well, I mean, I how? Do. You know, like because a, there's like a, a a comical sense to Vincent Vega, and I I've never seen an example of Daniel Day Lewis Daniel Day Lewis pulling that off. Like, he would have brought like Vincent Vega's character would have been so much more, a lot more stoic. Just by default, you couldn't have done anything about it. Daniel Day-Lewis is a damn good actor, but he's a stoic actor. I can't think of one character he's played that wasn't that. And that is not that same character. And he wouldn't have left... What are you talking about, dude? He wouldn't have left it. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Aaron Lincoln. That guy's a jokester. Uh, I have been blessed with great power. Or whatever, like, the voice he does is outrageous <laughs> in that movie. I tell you this much. Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> would not have left his machine gun on the counter while he went and took a shit. That's true, and that's something we will get to later too. Uh, so, David Lewis just coming off um, that uh, 
the the movie replay the Native American guy. I just had a, a brain oh, fart. Oh man, um, he wasn't actually Native American, but yeah, Las Vegas. Yeah, coming off Las Mohicans, <laughs> he, he he's hot. Right he's a hot property. <laughs> yeah, he's like he calls. Uh, he has his agents. Uh, he gets his hands on the script. Has his agent call Quinn's agent. Goes, I'm playing this fucking guy. He's like, get me in for uh, uh, audition. And then Quinn's like, okay, you know, like guys are starting to come after this part, but Quentin wants. Travolta from the very beginning because Quentin Tarantino is Quentin Tarantino and he saw a movie called Blowout which came out in the 80s I don't know if you've ever seen Blowout have you seen Blowout no it's a bizarre movie I'm not even going to try to 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 recite the plot go watch it it's a it's a John Travolta vehicle before he'd had like that huge crash of his career at this point he is dead as dead (laughs) like whereas cocaine it's as dead as fucking dead. (laughs) And uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was coming back in a big fucking way but no yeah uh, so Travolta and the studio and, and everyone's like Travolta, what? that guy's an unbelievable casting choice. He's terrible. Like he, he's, he's, he's cold. No one cares. Daniel Lewis is a better. So Tarantino has to fight for Travolta at every turn. Like literally every single turn has to, to battle all the producers and everyone else on the casting of John Travolta. Cause he just thinks this is the perfect role for him. Uh, and he, he just, he has this sort of knack for picking guys that are down in their luck and reciting, like resuscitating their career. Like uh, um, uh, Pam Greer and Jackie Brown, uh, or yeah. or Karen Dean as Bill and Kill Bill. He had played in a '70s kung fu show, but no one knew who the fuck he was until he played Bill in one of the bigger movies of our generation. So he Love does it, this. He, 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 and then he lived happily ever after. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, made his money there, and then you know, and then uh, disappeared off the face of the earth. Another one. Matt Dillon was set to play Butch Coolidge. Do you know about this? I did not know that. Matt Dillon was so, – so Tarantino wanted Matt Dillon. He wrote the part with Matt Dillon in mind and uh, promised the role to Matt Dillon. Uh, and so he writes a script, gives it to Matt Dillon and says, uh, you know, here it is. Here's your part. Matt Dillon reads it and he says, I love it, but let me sleep on it. So he essentially like gives Tarantino a night. <laughs> Tarantino said he immediately calls his agent and says, he's out. If he can't tell me face-to-face that he wants to be in the movie after he read the script, he's out. And then offered the role of Willis. Bruce Willis had gotten his hands on the script. And Willis is even hotter than Daniel Day Lewis. I mean, we're talking right. about like after two diehards, like this is before he started making. I mean, he, he's like on the fucking rise. He's like a phoenix. And he wants to be in this movie. And he wants, like, these guys are calling Tarantino <laughs> saying, like, literally like six years ago, he was a video clerk watching the movies that all these guys were in that are now calling him, being like, hey, how do I get in this thing? Um, so Matt Dillon missed that chance, man. I bet he, uh, Wakes up with some cold sweats thinking about that because I don't know what the fuck Matt Dillon's doing these days. I don't either. I, did, um, I was embarrassed to say I had to actually look him up. <laughs> I couldn't pick a picture of his face, and now I'm looking at it, and that's freaking hilarious. But yeah, he went on to get something about Mary. Uh, maybe, like, I believe in he the other He was in Crash, too, which has not aged well. Oh, uh, have you seen Crash recently? Oh, no, I have. That's a I tough like thing. It. Really? Tough thing. Yeah, tough thing. All right. Yeah, it, think, it thinks it has it all when it comes to racism, but watch it again. You're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. This is like what I thought racism was when I was like seven. Uh, <laughs> so, so revisit that guy. Um, so Sam Jackson, Jules Winfield. It was his part from the beginning. Quentin Tarantino wrote this part with Samuel Jackson and Samuel L. Jackson in mind. Uh, and the reason was is because Samuel Jackson auditioned for Reservoir Dogs, didn't get the part. What scene? Uh, but was still was st- you- uh, I, I don't know. He never said which part. Oh, he, he auditioned for the the guy that's like the uh, the cop that teaches Tim Ross character 
how to be like undercover. Oh, that was a that was yeah, yeah. he lost that role to the other guy. Oh, that's crazy. So you know it's funny. So uh, Samuel Jackson is at uh, is at Sundance Film Festival. Watches the first premiere of Reservoir Dogs. Walks up to Quentin Natter, and uh, Quentin says, uh, "Hey, uh, how'd you like the guy who got your part?" And just like trolls Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson was like, "What the fuck, man?" And then he said, and then Quentin laughs and says, "Hey, I wrote the script. I got this character you're perfect for. I have you in mind for it." So <laughs> Sam Jackson goes through the audition process like, uh, "I've got this part, man. Like I, like I, I'm gonna go do the read through. I'm gonna, um, but I'm not auditioning for the part. It's my part. I'm just gonna go like read the script out loud, just so they can do like scene test me or whatever." So. He goes in, does like a rudimentary read through and leaves. But then Paul Calderon, this actor who plays English Bob in the movie, the guy who's like at the bar and the guy that like lets him in the back door, uh, Jules Winfield, yeah, yeah, a man yeah, in yeah. Inglewood. Yeah, that guy. He comes in and auditions for Jules and apparently fucking kills it. Like just blows everyone's mind to the point where they're like, well, Samuel Jackson wasn't actually that good in his audition. And this guy is fucking amazing. So word of that gets to Sam Jackson, who's back in New York. Uh, and so he, he literally like flies back to LA to audition again, knowing that he's auditioning for this part. Now it's not just his, he apparently like, uh, he, as soon as he walks in, one of the producers confuses him for Lawrence Fishburne. He says, of course he does. so, which is slightly racist, yeah. right? That's the second time it happens to him in his life. <laughs> so, uh, so he's pissed as hell. <laughs> he has to get a food on the way from the airport. So he comes in with a burger in his hand and a, and a fast food drink in the other. Uh, and he walks in and starts ship, sipping the shake and eating his burger in front of him, like doing a jewel scene, basically. And he was so fucking pissed. He said he scared the producer shitless. Uh, and the producer said, I thought this guy was going to shoot a gun <laughs> right through my head. His eyes were popping out of his head and he just stole the part. So at that point, like that Sam Jackson was back. He as became, Jules. Uh, but he became he, the person. He really did. Yeah. He, he did. Uh, so that just the casting of this is, is fascinating. Um, Uma Thurman. She initially didn't want yeah, the part. I heard. Actually, I heard she about a little bit of drama. The scene was I weird. I look this up a little bit more, like that she felt pressured into the role. Mm. Oh, wait. Sorry, audience. It's the main host. Is- I was taking a sip of a little vino yeah. there. Yeah. He, yeah. I mean, she, so she had um, uh, Tarantino called her and was like, hey, like, I, I want you to do this. And she was like, I don't know. Like, it's not the cursing. It's not the drug use. The gimp scene's really weird. Uh-huh. She was like, "That's weird. Like, I don't, I don't know how this is gonna play and affect my career." She's twenty three. Right. Oh my! Uh, she's God. beginning That's her crazy. career, right? So she, Michelle Pfeiffer, Meg Ryan, Holly Hunter, Rosanna Arquette were all considered for that role, uh, but Uma is the only person Tarantino wanted. So he literally called her on the phone, said, "Look, I need you in this movie. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna literally read the script to you over the phone, like, because I want you to read it. I want you to hear. It. I want you to hear how I hear it." So he gets her in, and uh, obviously she's very thankful. She ends up going to become like his muse, yes, like over the next couple decades. Uh, so that that's kind of the, a weird uh, Mia Wallace casting. What if? Um, yeah, I mean, there's just a ton of stuff, man. Like the 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 Malibu that Vincent Vega drives belong yeah, to Tarantino. Yeah, I don't got believe that story. Uh, that story but, sounds a little odd to me. Man. Yeah, that like, sounds like some that's some yeah, IMDb yeah, bullshit. Is what that is? Too. I just missed yeah. that one pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so they had, they hired a guy, uh, Tarantino's ex, uh, it was a friend from acting school. who was a former heroin addict to, to essentially be the drug yeah. consultant. Dude, he tells I, Travolta, yeah, did you I, read this? I, the next time you, the next time yeah, you and ahead. I are together, yeah. man, we're going to buy a bottle of tequila and do we need a hot tub? It was a hot tub or he said just a warm bath. 
a warm bath. I mean, hot tub would work. Now, is that supposed yeah. to to make you feel what it's like to be coming off of heroin and wanting it, or to feel what you feel like in the depths of it? To feel like you feel in the depths of it is what I thought. Man. Because you're like, oh. really? That, war, that weird drunk on tequila, you're like blacked out on tequila, and your body is subsumed and warm. And that feeling where you're just like, it's supposed to be what's supposed to be. That seems like the best possible scenario for me to get to know what heroin feels like. I will absolutely do that. Probably yeah. before the end of the year. Probably so. I, I can't believe yeah. I haven't done that yet, honestly. I've done, I mean, since I, I read this on IMDb, yeah, but I don't yeah. have a tub right now. So I, gotta, I like, I like what, I, uh, what I believe is what happened is the Tarrant era that um, Travolta went home to his wife, the bottle of tequila, and was like, run the bath. We're going to – we got to research the role. <laughs> yeah. That like – it seems like a nice uh, Well, apparently she brought him shots. Like she's just lining him up on the edge of the bed. He's like, another one. And she like brings him another shot. So good, one. good wife there for uh, whoever Travolta was married to at the time. Have no idea. Literally no idea. <laughs> oh, man. You have any good, uh, good trivia you uncovered as you uh, researched this movie? Well, you picked up a lot of the ones that are happening in the background. I focus a lot more on the intricacies of the story and like yeah. the – so like for example, you're talking about the Malibu, right? And the conversation as it goes by the internet is that Bruce Willis is the one that keyed the Malibu as he was leaving with his pack of red apples and matches Mm -hmm. coming out of the bar. He was mad Mm -hmm. about the confrontation he had with Travolta. And uh, what are you looking at, Palooka? I'm not your friend, Hunchy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's enough to send somebody over the edge. You could see it in his eyes. He was mad. And he walks out and he sees this beautiful Malibu in the parking lot. He walks up and he keys it. I don't buy that for a second. That does not seem like the thing Butch would do. It seems like a chicken shit move, as John Travolta said. And Butch would know better than to, he would better know better mm. than to fuck with another man's vehicle. Mm. So I don't buy that. But I it like should be fucking Butch. killed, man. It should be no trial, killed, man. no jury, straight, straight to execution. execution. <laughs> Tell you. Um, man, there was a lot, dude, the internet goes crazy with some of this backstories. I don't know if you wanted to wait on, on the briefcase, what could be in it. Pat, you, you're doing a lot of conversation about Jackie Brown, about Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, no, like, come on. Let's do, the, let's, do, let's do three minutes on the briefcase. What do you got? Oh, man. Oh, it's the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. It's the MacGuffin of this movie. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that it. drives the plot. Uh, yeah. And famously, what it really has is a is a gold light bulb and a battery in there. Uh, yeah. But the, but our our characters in the movie treat it with the utmost reverence. Uh, anytime it's open, and, and of course Tarantino never reveals what's in there, and he lets us, the audience, the watchers, be the deciders of what's in there. Dude, you I'm you subscribe to diamonds from from Reservoir Dogs. I'm sold on it, and let me tell you why. Okay. Okay. At the end of Reservoir Dogs, I don't know when the last time you saw that movie. Mine was yesterday. The end of the movie. Steve Buscemi, Mr. Pink, mm-hmm. escapes from the warehouse, right? Mm-hmm. You hear police, sirens in the background, some shooting. You don't know what happens, but he's running off with the diamonds. Now, what I believe happens is he was separated with the, from the diamonds in some, you know, crazy way. And he ended up having to go into private, or he had to go into hiding. And the best place he figured would be to become a Buddy Holly impersonator and be a server in big, what is it, Big Rabbit Slims? Jack Rabbit Slims. Jack Rabbit Slims. This is Jack Rabbit Slims. Nice. I'm sorry. An Elvis man like you would love it. Yeah, you are being a square. 
<laughs> that so that's what I happened. I think he was going. I think he's uh, hiding out as a server playing Buddy Holly, and I think he's ultimately trying to get closer to the diamond so he can steal him back. I subscribe to that theory. That's much better than Marcellus Wallace's soul. Yeah, that is it. I mean, there are like a lot of weird, fucking, crazy theories out there, like that. Like in the the band aid on the back of his neck actually hides right. like the six 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 or so, wherever the devil extracted his soul. Or right. I mean, pound sign the internet, right? I mean, this is all before Reddit. Like this is all before. Imagine if Reddit had gotten oh a hold of this movie before. Uh, I didn't get a chance to dive into those waves, but so yeah, that's that's as good a uh, theory as any. I, I like that because his movies are connected. You know, we see it all the time. We see the interconnectedness of his characters. We see characters with the same last names appear in other, like Vincent Vega is the brother of Vic Vega, Michael Madsen's character, right. Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs. Literally, they're yeah. brothers. That is canon. So they all takes place in the same world. So I can see that, and I like the uh, Steve Buscemi, um, Buddy Holly little reference oh, there in his little cameo to role. he's related to uh, suzanne vega famous pop singer famous folk singer yeah cousin. yeah yeah I mean, you watch, watch the deleted scenes i said it's my least favorite thing i yeah. hate that lead scene but i wanted to watch it again to remember why oh, tarantino awful, hates man. hates all those too. So like he hates all those deleted scenes yeah uh, so i think it, what was in there is is another reference from another Tarantino movie, a script he wrote, True Romance. I think it's Elvis's, one of Elvis's suits. I know that's like a a pretty popular theory. And uh, it's the one he's wearing actually when Val Kilmer cameos as him in True Romance because Clarence talks to Elvis. He's like his hype man. I think it's that because here's why. I think like everyone always says like in the movie, every time they see it, they're just like so in awe and diamonds could do that. But I mean, these are hitmen. These are criminals. Like they've probably seen uh, riches before. You know, they, they've seen things right. that are like, you know, huge stacks of money or big things of diamonds. But the Elvis suit, you know, we know Vincent is a big Elvis guy. We, we know Tim Roth is, you know, uh, equally pop culture, you know? So when he sees that, he goes, is that what I think right. it is? Why would you have to ask that if it were diamonds? I mean, maybe like that many diamonds, but if it were Elvis's suit, like worth what, priceless amounts of money, I could see him being like, no fucking way. And it's gold too, so it like would shimmer gold. That's that's what I subscribe to. Why would Brad? All right, answer me this: Why would Brad and Flock of Seagulls have have this yeah. briefcase? Those kids that get gunned down for yeah. fucking. They, so they, I, what I gather from them is that they were. I what gather that they were like there? supposed to do some sort of like they were couriers basically. Like they were carrying the briefcase to Marcellus and they were just acting as like bag men basically. And they decided that they were like, fuck it. We're just going to like steal the shit, sell it and then rich off, live rich off the spoils for the rest of our lives. What they don't understand is how like vengeful Marcellus is and how important this particular item is to him. I also don't think they know what's in it. I don't think they know yeah, the code. I don't think they know the, uh, the code to get in. So yeah. Yeah. Ah, I understand. He also says that he's doing his boss's dirty laundry. When he wants it clean. Yeah. I that mean, holds you know, up, Sam. Uh, yeah. Different, different, different uh, opinions. I, I, I like that one, though, because that's, that's an appropriately Tarantino thing. That's a thing that's not just money. It's kind of a, like a little pop culture artifact. That's kind of what I like to think. Yeah. like it. Uh, you know, one okay. thing that I love, too, at Trivia, is that they originally wanted Jules to wear an Afro wig. 
like a full afro. Yeah, I saw that as well. Which so the production I, I'm assistant. glad that he made the creative decision on that one, right? Well, so the production assistant, she's uh, just, I assume this like literal 20 year old girl who works on the set. He's like, hey, go buy a fucking afro wig and then be back here in 30 minutes with my coffee. She's like, okay. She runs off, buys a jerry curl wig. She didn't know what the fucking afro curl wig is. And comes back with the jerry curls. Quentin's probably incensed. He's like, I fucking told you an afro. You know, like, I just imagine him freaking out. And uh, Samuel Jackson's like, actually, this makes more sense because this is like the look now. Like, this is what the gangbangers have. They got jerry curls. And now it's become like so intertwined the character. I can't imagine. And I guess if he had an afro, it'd be the same way. I couldn't imagine him any way else. But like, that would be kind of <laughs> a full afro in like the 90s because it doesn't take place. And yeah. I, I kind of get what he was going for. It's like a character kind of like, from the past that still maintains that the look in the, even in the nineties, but I don't know. Right. I, I like, I love the look, man. Like this is, it's so the Jerry curl wig is just like, he's picking it at one point after he gets the shower. It's the best. Yes, it's the best. But now him, him getting the pieces oh. of the skull and brain out of his hair. Gotta scoop so. all those pieces of brain and skull. Those little pools of blood that are collected. Work. You got to soak that shit up. I'm going to do Kaitel too. I can't be stopped right now. It can't be stopped. You're going to keep going. I love it. No, and you know what I think of every time you talk about Jerry Curls is coming to America. You ever see that? Yeah, they uh, are. Yeah. yeah. And I, I like to think every single time there's a, a funny scene where his whole family is sitting. They all have good Jerry Curls, and they're all sitting on a couch together, a sofa, as like a high back seat. And they have their head resting against it, and they all stand up at the same time, and there's just this like moisture from all the gel and yeah. the spritz that they put in it. Yeah. I like thinking that that's going on with – with Samuel, every time he sits down on something, it just like leaves this. Jules was here. Wet mark. Yeah. Jules was here. All right. So naturally, this movie, ton of Oscars. So this movie comes in like the insane success of the year. 94 comes out. So the 95 Oscars, it's nominated for every major category. Best original screenplay. Best actor, John Travolta. Best picture. Best supporting actor, Samuel Jackson. Best supporting actress, Uma Thurman. QT gets a Best Director nom, and then it gets a Best Editing nomination as Give well. Give me the name of the editor. Come on, Sam. Without her, I wouldn't have done it. Sal- Sally oh, Mackey. Boy. Thank you. Yeah. She's great, yeah, actually. She actually She did Inglorious Bastards, man. I mean. Yeah, and then she died after that. Um, oh, she passed away, so like he's, he's had a different editor, yeah. She's a Oscar-winning editor. She's a, a pretty big force in the industry. So, nominated for all the shit. Only wins one Oscar. It does. Best Writer. Loses to, loses to, what movie mostly that year? A formidable feel-good movie. Formidable feel-good movie from 94. I don't know, Sam. What? Forrest Gump. Life oh, like on. a box of no, chocolates. That's, that's good. Versus, that was a good, that was a good society choice. Uh, that, I think the world's better because of it. I support that. Hmm. I I I I tee off. I don't like Forrest Gump. I'm off. Yeah. No, I'm out. I'm out on Forrest Gump. Like a jaded lawyer, dude. Like you have to love Forrest Gump. It's a feel good movie. You need that in society. We need the world that you. Is it a feel good movie? Is where Pulp Fiction was beats Forrest Gump for Best Picture. That's crazy. Dark, it should. Dark world. No writing. How many people think writing. about Forrest Gump now, dude? Everybody. A lot more right, people think on. about Forrest no. Gump than Pulp Fiction. I would say that. That's yeah. not true. That that is. I I doubt that. I I don't know. I don't, well, well, this is this is going to happen on the Forrest Gump podcast. But here's what I'll tell you: it's a piece of shit movie, and it's 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 actually not as smart as it thinks it is. 
And I just, I, if you come at me and say like, Oh, I love Forrest Gump. I immediately regret talking to you right then. Cause like it's, it's, it's not that smart. I think Tom Hanks as playing a mentally challenged person has aged extremely bad. Cause he's essentially doing an impression of what someone would, if I were to make fun of someone like that. Uh, and I, just get the fuck out of here, man. And here's the thing. Tom Hanks wins best, best actor beats John Travolta. Okay. Okay. You know, okay. Like, I prefer John Travolta, but I can see this. Tom Hanks won the year before for a movie called sure. Philadelphia, in which he plays an a, a associate attorney, actually a lawyer in a similar position to who I am right now, although way smarter and at a better firm. And in Philadelphia. He's gay in Philadelphia, and he, you know, contracts AIDS. It's a whole, like, case, kind of a legal uh, movie about that. But he's fucking really good in that movie, like, so good. And he plays another protected class, you know, a homosexual at that time, which is like, in the early nineties was like a big deal. So like he plays that really well. And I think gives it some reverence this one. And then Forrest Gump, come on, man. Yeah, I'm out. Anyway, I think this is age horribly. I think like the movie that anyone's still talking about in the film world is Pulp Fiction. Forrest Gump changed nothing other than what we view oh, boxes of chocolates. Like, I mean, and, and when we look back on this, it's like, ugh, like Forrest Gump beat the shit out of Pulp Fiction. Quentin Tarantino still doesn't have a best director Oscar. And he's maybe one of the top four to five best directors of, of all time. Yeah, and now he's like getting crazy, which sucks. I don't feel like he's. Uh, I've seen. I watched a couple of interviews with him because I was. I forgot what he looked like when I saw him as Jimmy, and I was like, "Damn, Quentin Tarantino used to be super skinny." And then I like looked at a yeah. picture of him now, and I'm like, "Holy sh!" Looks like Jabba the Hutt, man. Well, that's what happens. You get older, yeah, but like, yeah. no, he's just lost a little weight. Uh, he's lost a little picture. weight, like on this. Uh, on, on the once upon a time, right, I'm glad to tour. hear that. Um, but I mean, he was like he was putting together like incoherent sentences when I was watching some interviews with him. Okay, well, and, he, he's you watch a bad one. You, he's he's still he's he's himself. He's always seems like he just bumped a line of coke, but he he is passionate about what he does. And damn it, I'm glad he's still around no, making movies because hey, once on a time, Hollywood, that's my fucking masterpiece. We'll talk that's about my that. weekend yeah. movie this uh, coming up this weekend. But I'm curious if. Uh, He's been around too long and he's pissed off the Academy too much that he's not going to ever get that Oscar. I think he gets it. He gets uh, it for Hollywood. Uh, but what happens is they give him the, oh, we're sorry about Pulp Fiction Oscar. Just like they gave Leo the, we're sorry movie. about uh, Wolf of Wall Street. We're sorry about Wolf of Wall Street. Here's this right. one for the revenue, like, which everyone knows is not his best performance. Like, but it's like the, hey, good job, Oscar. It's going to happen. But he should have won it for this, his fucking masterpiece. All right, get this. Best Supporting Actor, Samuel Jackson. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea who won the Best Supporting Actor that year? No idea. All right. Martin Landau and Ed Wood. Do you know anything about that? I know that Martin Landau sounds familiar. He's the, guy, he's the old guy in Rounders. Uh, he's like the oh. he's Damon. Um, and he, he's a fine actor. You know, yeah. Shouts to pour one out for my guy, Martin Landau. Uh, you're looking at a picture of him right now. Mm-hmm. He kind of looks like he is uh, the real life version of Frankenstein. Um, so he's in a movie called Edwood, which is a Tim Burton movie where it's about like this shitty director from the fifties who made shitty sci-fi horror movies. He is not fucking better than Samuel Jackson in this movie, dude. Like uh, there, there's, there's very few better supporting actor performances than this fucking performance. And the fact that Martin Landau beat him is absolutely insane. And, and, Completely ridiculous. Uh, Uma Thurman, best supporting actress. Guess who beat her? No idea. 
Diane West in Bullets Over Broadway. I didn't care anything about either of these two things. I don't know who Diane West is. I don't know what Bullets Over Broadway is. <laughs> but what I do know is not a damn person is talking about either of those things. And people still reference Uma Thurman in the booth saying, uh, I, I believe my boss, you know, my husband, your boss told me to take me out to dance. And I want to dance. I want to win that trophy. So dance good. That's something that people still say, dude, like. I was incensed over this. Like I kept every time I would uncover a new, like someone beating someone, I would get more mad and I'm still fucking. I can tell man. Like I wish people could see, we should do, you should start moving over to the YouTube podcast format so people can see. Yeah. YouTube channels. Yeah. Cause your hands are flying all over the place. You're very worked up. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. No, it's an unjust world, man. I agree with you. I I still, this one, these have aged really bad. This wasn't like, uh, you know, certain years where you're like, okay, like, you know the godfather the godfather network or something like okay like godfather's fucking epic network's fucking epic but the godfather beat network okay like that was like uh you know i can stomach that one like this is like fucking forest Gump, man you're not gonna let that one go no it's terrible i'd never watch it and when i do i'm like i'm gonna have to go back and watch that i I don't know i didn't think too much about like judging Tom Hanks uh, acting as a mentally handicapped person in 2019 with like how sensitive everyone is right now. No, no, no. I'm not trying to do the, that, that you're trying, to, sh- you're trying to shame that even, him right now on your podcast, right? I'm saying that even at the time it was not good. <laughs> it, it was like, it was not a perfor- good performance and it's, it's just offensive even in the context of 94, hmm. like it, unbelievable that we decided to give him a best act. Well. Unbelievable. Anyway, all right, let's move to some other categories. Uh, let's move to some acting categories. Who you got for best acted in most buckets? Uh, who, who's, your, who's your pick? Kathy Griffin. Okay. Yeah, she's no, great in this movie. Um, I got to give it to Chris for walking, man. I mean, that, that's an easy answer. I know that, but damn. My favorite scene by far from that movie is when he's explaining to young Butch about the watch. And he commands the entire scene, right? He takes up all the real estate on the screen. And what is it? I mean, it's a good three minutes of, of just him talking essentially back and mm-hmm. forth with this child, explaining this story. No back and forth. Kid doesn't say anything. He doesn't say it's a word, but the pan, panning, panning, uh, panning. So it doesn't sit on his face throughout the entire yeah, it, cu- it cuts a couple times. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's mostly just like walking, talking to a fucking camera lens. I love it, man. But the best part of it is that pause, right? This watch. Then he sits on it for like just shy of an uncomfortable amount of time. Like he gets so close to it feeling uncomfortable before he hops back in. And that is such a confident move. It's one of my favorite things that public speakers or actors can do is come out on stage in the middle of a performance or in the middle of something and then just stop talking and let everybody sit. You ready to have yeah. your bubble burst right now? You ready? Are you ready for this? Oh, All right, dude, so, don't do that. You would. I, I don't. I don't know if I happen to have this in my outline. No idea if it's true. This is half-assed internet research for sure. In the scene where Captain Coons is giving Young Butch the gold watch, Walken appeared to pause during the end of his explanation for the story behind the golden watch. This is because Christopher Walken had forgotten his next lines before recovering in time to make it I look like care. he paused on purpose. It was decided to leave it in there. Because of how authentic it appeared. And I agree. Yeah, that is still fucking fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good performance. I, so I, that's why I made him my sixth man. Kind of my uh, 
most right. most with limited screen time award uh, because he's literally there for like four minutes and he's a memorable performance. Last thing the, oh, the shot on the movie actually like was this he was there for like one day. He just like came uh, on dog. Yeah, sure. just brought him on set. Yeah, he brought him on set for a day. Went in some house in L.A. and just uh, you know it was just three actors on set and then they set up a camera, set blocked it up, and then he talked to a camera for gave that speech countless times. I'm sure. Um, Not a bad idea. Can you hear those South American dogs in the background? I can. I can. Nice. Hey, man. Tell that bitch to chill. Experience. <laughs> Tell that bitch to chill. Out. <laughs> Ask those dogs if they know what Fonzie's like. <laughs> so they need to be cool, man. All right. So my best. I, I mean, Samuel Jackson, dude. Like it, it is. It is a career-defining performance, and I mean, it, it's one of the best characters in movies. Was is Jules Winsfield? Like it. Every scene he's in, he completely controls with only the kind of swagger that Samuel Jackson can have. To the point why where does he get? Why does he get put as supporting actor? I I was a little surprised when I saw that. Like I didn't feel like Travolta had a commanding lead in that in that role. I mean, I suppose like in the script, maybe he was titled as that, but it didn't come off that way at all. Yeah, I think that's Travolta's technically in all three stories, but most of it, I think, is just the the um, maneuvering with respect to the nominations, because you would rather, you know, place your actors in different categories and give them all chances to win, as opposed to pitting Sam Jackson and, and John Travolta against each other, both in the best actor category. I Ironically, the, they're about to face the same thing with Hollywood. They're about to have Brad Pitt and Leo probably go against each other in best actor. Mm. And the question is whether they kick one of them to best supporting. So it'll be kind of a, a fascinating 25 years later, same director, same writer, uh, facing the same sort of thing uh, for a different movie. But yeah, it definitely uh, seems like a snub. I yeah. don't feel like that was an assumed role. I think they really thought he had a better chance supporting actor. And really, when you got fucking Martin Landau beating him, might agree. But that's <laughs> uh, that is what it is, and it's aged terribly. And uh, here yeah. we are, and, and you know, the, the, this character shows up on in college dorm rooms across the country. You know, it shows up uh, in pop culture is equal 25 17 it's not even a real bible verse but everyone knows it you know and it's just a he is literally just such a fucking force in this movie uh and there's just not a lot of movies where that's the case where someone comes in and you're just like whoa like this just literally blew me away everything he says is awesome sam jackson can deliver quentin tarantino's dialogue like no other actor can for some reason he just has he has that cadence he has the way that his voice inflects the sort of way he's delivering a speech like a preacher from a pulpit is how I imagine Tarantino writing it. And I, I just think that that's, he was literally put on this earth to like Quentin Tarantino was put on this earth to write and direct movies. And Sam Jackson was put on this earth to act in Quentin Tarantino movies. I love that. Like just, Do you know what the, you ever heard the tie in from uh, Samuel going into kill bill being the piano player in the church? Yeah. He's a Rufus, right? Yeah. Rufus. yeah I like yeah, that. Yeah. I, I really enjoy See, that's what I love about Quentin movies. There's not a lot of movies that, that seem to be operating within the same universe. And you can poke holes in it very easily, but uh, you know, different characters dying off and whatnot. But I like the idea that that's Jules. Jules is Rufus, and he found himself at this little church playing the piano. He yeah, because he's a, and this is one chapter. Just walking the earth, yeah, and he, yeah, he ends man. up, you know, in a congregation because he, you know, he, if you want to play blind man, I'm gonna go walk with the shepherd. You know, that's uh, that's Jules, baby. So well, I, yeah. I just can't can't get Pat without him. It's the movie it doesn't work. Uh, I think you have to have him in that role. I can't fathom anyone else. And you know, he he changed the way that we would watch like these sort of performances. So 
Uh, shout out to Tim Daniel Roth? Jackson. I don't know why uh, Tim Roth gets so blown up, man. I uh, like. Wait, what do you mean blown up? Well, I don't know. Like, so coming into my, you know, a lot more. If it's not already been made abundantly clear in this podcast, that you know an obscene amount of behind the curtain information about actors, actresses, directors, producers, and. I am a passive movie watcher that also gets intrigued by movies and probably dig in more than the average person. But Tim Roth always came off to me as like a big time actor. Like the role that he had in that particular film uh, seemed to assume a lot of authority because it was like put on him and he's in the movie with a bunch of other really big actors. Mm-hmm. And when I Kings went back to movie. He kicks you know, off the, the, the opening scene and, and closes it. Own, right out of the way. And he does a great job. I'm not trying to steal that from him at all. It's just, I don't know where he came from. I was looking at some of his past stuff and like he came into Reservoir Dogs, which I don't think he did a great job in that movie. And then, Oh, okay. You're, you're, you're not a big Mr. Orange guy, huh? No, nah, not really. I didn't like him taking the bullet bull to the <laughs> belly. I didn't, I thought that was way overplayed. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to die. Wow, dude, goes, it gives, yeah. It gives me like a little too much. He goes, like, yeah. I'm going to fucking die. It is, it is too much. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm fucking dying. I'm fucking dying. Yeah. So, uh, and then, uh, and then Kytel, are you a doctor? Huh? You a- <laughs> Tell me where you went to medical school. Are you're you a doctor? Okay. No, you're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. <laughs> Man, but yeah, I, I, told you, I, I was curious. <laughs> like Tim Roth, he didn't do a bad job in the movie. I liked him. He the, he lands that corson, so that worked. But I don't know. I guess if I had to say anything, he definitely did get the most buckets. Yeah, no, I mean, he's he's good. Like, he's everyone's good in this movie. Well, the exception of a few people, but, like, everyone for the most part is good. All the main characters are good. Um, and Roth, I think, got this role purely because of the relationship he had with Quentin yeah. on Reservoir Dog, we have to assume. And, um, he, I'm sure that was shot in a week, like, all those scenes. Like, they brought him in, did the – probably shot the beginning and the end of the movie in that diner, which, by the way, I've been to that coffee shop. Yes, I'm, um, I'm fully, used I'm fully to aware. Own, Used to own a coffee mug from there. My mom broke it when I was oh, moving, uh, which yeah, yeah it sucked. Um, and of course, I didn't express uh, how you know I didn't express how meaningful. <laughs> I didn't articulate to her how meaningful that mug was to me. I didn't illustrate to her. Bedside table on the kangaroo. This shit, all this other shit on fire. All I care about is the mug. I specifically said not to forget the fucking watch. Not to forget the fucking mug. I guess she doesn't um, the podcast. Uh, no, no, hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully 56 not. minutes. Just listen to the All right, so... Well, let's go to six man then, because like it ties in. Yeah, no, I got walking. I got walking. You know, I got walking for that. So he, he just like limited screen time, comes in hot, delivers that speech. Amazing. We've talked about it at nausea. Uh, I got? go Eric Stoltz, Lance. I think Lance yeah. did a really good job. Like, mm. he, carries that, like he, he carries that scene really, really well. Again, this is another part about Quentin Tarantino movies I love. He gives it so much time to grow. So like, which scene? Uh, we talk, we're talking the uh, adrenaline. Chain? Him calling the phone, like the phone ringing. It's like, Lance, I thought you told these motherfuckers not to call this late. Like this fucking asshole. He goes, yes, and that's exactly what I'm about to tell this fucking asshole right now. Right now, right? But he take, I mean, that it rings like 15 times, Sam. And he take. He's watching like three stooges eating like fruit, fruit. Yeah, like, it's amazing. Two in the morning, yeah. I love it. And he walks over, but like he handles that scene very well. He's looking for his fucking medical book. He's he like walks out legitimately pissed. 
in the middle of his house, right? In the, in the front yard, which is a fact. Have you lost your fucking uh, mind? It's great. And then, so I was looking, just doing very basic, again, half-assed internet research into his background. And it looks like he got carried over from relationship with Roger Avery because they worked together in Killy Zoe. And mm. after that, he was like a CSI crime scene episode and then dead. Like, didn't see anything yeah. else coming from him. Which I thought was a little strange. Because like he did a really good job in this movie, and this is like a movie that would I would assume carry a lot of weight on a resume. And who knows? Maybe he didn't want to do it anymore. I, I don't know what was going on in Mister Stoltz's mind, but he seemed to have a lot of talent in that particular scene. Yeah, he's good. He's good. He, he, he's uh, Lance and Jimmy were the two roles that mm-hmm. Tarantino was looking at taking, so he decides to go Jimmy and gives Lance to uh, Eric Stoltz, and I thought really good, like the classic white white guy drug dealer who's never done an honest job his entire life, you know, like wears a bathrobe over a speed racer shirt, which you, you know, like, you know, like you get this guy. Immediately. Yeah. 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 Um, it's just, uh, you, 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 the little things like that, the character moments that you get. And, and I agree. He, he motivates the action during that adrenaline shot scene. Like he, he is playing a Travolta and the fact they work so well together that they're sort of bitching at each other. The whole scene yeah. works, and you're like, "Holy fuck!" What yeah, happens? Angela Jones. I agree. Had her as well, Esmeralda de la Lobos. Oh, I disagree. I'm going to go ahead and disagree no. with you there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why? All right, but well, you know, I, I so I think she. I put her in my like what uh, one thing I don't like about the movie. Uh, I, I don't like that scene at all. Uh, the Esmeralda Villalobos scene because I'm I think so glad, man. I was telling Rocio, you literally. I guess we watched this movie on. We must have watched it Saturday or Sunday. And I was like, man, I think this might be one of my like top scenes of the movie. Really? The, uh, the yeah. cab scene. Okay. Yeah. I, I yeah think, um, no, uh, let's talk about it then. So, so I like think that it's the only point in the movie where the movie, the plot stops and the movie kind of drags a little bit. And at, at no point in that scene, am I, is anything moving forward other than he's like being taken to the hotel where he's staying. And mm-hmm. I, I know it's like a little supposed to be some little philosophical discussion on what it's like to kill somebody. And okay, like blah, blah, blah. But I don't really understand the purpose of that scene at all. It doesn't even. I get it. See, I get it as a, like a, a peek outside of the bubble a little bit, right? Like we're really ingrained in this story that's happening and we haven't really gotten to know much about Butch just yet. And as he's escaping from, who did he kill, by the way? Remember his name? Floyd. Nice. Yeah, I, you know, it really made me mad. <clears throat> the only time in my entire life I knew an answer to a radio quiz was that question. It said, "Who did Bruce Willis kill in Pulp Fiction boxing?" It's like if you can guess this, like you get tickets to some concert that I didn't give a shit about. But I knew the answer, and I called, and then nothing happened. I just sat on line, but I was like, "I know the fucking answer. I know this answer. I've never known an answer before." I was very excited. <laughs> That's and a crazy came. question. Yeah, I thought so yeah. too, and I was very proud that I knew the answer to it. Yeah. This was years ago, man. This was up in, when I was still in Philadelphia. Um, where the hell was I? Villa Lobos. So, dude, she's a very interesting character, man. This insanely attractive Colombian taxi driver that has like a kind of creepy interest in murder is driving around late at night. Having conversations with people in the back seat, 
Mm-hmm. And she's going to go on and continue doing her normal little life, right? It's just a nice little break from the movie to remind you that there's a lot of other ants outside of this story that have their own universe that they operate in. Mm-hmm. I love stuff like that, man. I love being able to like, think as the movie progresses and freaking Butch has a gag ball in his mouth. I'm curious, what's Elsmeralda doing right now? Because mm. I got to see a little bit of a peek into her life. And then she left just as, as quickly as she entered, but... Uh, I thought she did a really nice job kind of putting a little fingerprint on the movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's, that's, you're perfectly entitled to that opinion. And, and I just feel like it drags, you know, like, so look, I, I feel like she's also kind of, and I mean, you live in South America. Like, I feel like she's kind of doing me doing an SNL South American character. I feel like she's like, uh, you know, like, uh, the name is Colombian. And she's like, bon- <laughs> Buenas noches. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like it's like me on SNL. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. Is this coming? Is this coming? Is this coming from your vast knowledge of the Colombian accent and culture? Is it accurate? Is she? Does she? Are you like? Yes, this is woman. I don't Colombian? know, motherfucker. I live in Paraguay. I don't know Colombia. Yeah, well, you live closer to, Par- to Colombia than I do. <laughs> no, I. Uh, if I had to assume how a Paraguayan person would say "butch," they would definitely say "butch." They would say it just like that, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they would totally ask about whether or not your name means anything. I had a really good laugh when he says, uh, I'm American, honey. Our names don't, Our names mean, don't shit. mean shit. Yeah. Oh, it's the best. That's a good okay. line. And yeah, it's super maybe, true, maybe. man. That, that little cultural gap right there is a, is a real thing. So I'm going to tell you right now, I think you enjoy the scene because of your experiences in South America, probably more than the average American. Yeah. That's just because you don't get it, Sam. You don't, uh, you know, you're, I'm not that smart. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that much about the movie or like anything. Uh, yeah. Okay. 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 So I don't know. I just, it slows down for me. And I've always, since the first time I saw it and to date, when I watched it a couple nights ago, I was like, man, this scene just, I don't get it. Like I, yeah. I don't understand why it's here. And the, re- the rest of the fucking movie, it's like zips along, you know, like you're like with these people. And uh, I mean, you know a lot about Butch anyway, because Marcellus tells you all you need to know about Butch when he gives his opening speech. You know, you, yeah, you failed true. boxer. Like he, he essentially tells us Butch's bio really clever use of dialogue there by Tarantino, but making it sound like, you know, fitting it in there and making it natural, which is great screenwriting. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 and I'm, but I'm glad you had some insightful points and yeah, like I, I think the people that like that scene are exact. That's exactly why they like it. I just don't. Yeah. I like Quentin Tarantino. Uh, just a one little more fun fact. And like, she was actually an actress in uh, another movie. This is your backstory, your point with Quentin having watched somehow every like every yeah, movie insane. that no one else has yeah. ever seen, yeah. he's seen somehow. And this movie called Curdled in '91. She plays this young character, this young girl named Gabriella. Gabriella that uh, like stumbles across a crime, a crime scene when she's a child, and like ter- like becomes sexually like stimulated from it and interested, and uh, becomes a crime scene like cleanup person in Miami. And then someone, as she's cleaning up a crime scene. Uh, comes back to the crime scene to like get some evidence, and I didn't read past that. <laughs> that was the plot. Yeah, but he was so enthraturated with her performance in that movie that he asked her to be Esmeralda. Well, I mean, he wrote movies. a fucking scene probably with her in mind. Like, if I don't get this girl specifically for yeah, her, and yeah, and I'm not even going to put the scene in my movie because otherwise, like, what's the point? Like, uh, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I read that too. I didn't read the plot. That's interesting. One thing she her IMDb also. Uh, included the uh the pretty classic movie and i'm scrolling around trying to find it. uh her other role was uh hooker 
um, in, wow. in Jim, you know, hooker number one and Jim Carrey's 1999 delight man in the moon. Uh, so, you know, she has had a, uh, she has had an insanely successful career, uh, in, in the, uh, in the movie industry. So, uh, you know, whatever, like you have that scene, Steve, one for me, one for you, you know, have I your scene. Yeah, All right. Man. So what's the best scene in the movie? What, what do you, what do you got for the ISO play? The single greatest actor scene? What, what's your favorite scene? If you turn on, like, if you can only have one scene out of this entire movie, what do you got? Mm, I think this is going to sound a little weird to me, man. Uh, the dance scene. Travolta and Uma standing up there dancing. I like that scene a lot, man. I know, I know, like, you can go with, like, the Christopher Walken, you can go with the needle to the heart, but, uh, I don't know, as I get a little older, I start recognizing some of these, like, scenes in movies that, like, I don't think are supposed to be the part everybody sits on and waits and, and talks about nonstop. I really enjoy the dance scene. That's, like, when the two characters really mesh into one another. And I was surprised to see John Travolta like get up there and fucking dance. I guess every movie has to have a John Travolta dance scene. If he's going to be in the movie, he's going to dance. But I would say that was mine. What was yours? Yeah, yeah, great scene. I I, I wrote down. It's just magical to see Travolta and Uma up there. You know, one thing on this recent rewatch too that I noticed, and, and I want to see if you agree. So as I've gotten older, and and as I've watched this movie, this is another thing that I've sort of noticed. Sexual chemistry between Uma and Travolta yeah, and that dude, scene huge. is is the the palpable tension you can feel yeah. is real and it makes the thing work because otherwise yeah. like there's no drama you know if, they, if there's not the chance that they're going to have sex that night then there's no plot you know that because it all no, starts with the straw like that that whole scene that the whole I would say I bring it back even further I guess not just the dancing scene just culminates yeah the booth that. scene yeah but like the booth scene I mean like from call for philip morris like and on it's like the two of them are the only people in that entire restaurant right and like they don't even talk to each other for a good portion of it right but like from him rolling her a cigarette to you know her handling his cooties like yes it's it's charged it's a charged scene and it's supposed to be i mean that's like the whole build up that's why everybody's giving him such a hard time with it because like everyone knows but man yeah, she's great. They're great. They have good chemistry. And there's we've seen many a movie where, you know, two roles like that don't have good chemistry and scenes like that don't work as well. Uh, so that that was one thing I noticed in this recent rewatch was how much like, you know, the more dates you go on, I guess, and the more like you realize kind of the, like that, that sort of scene almost is, is, a, is a pretty interesting. Like in college, you really didn't grasp it just because like college is such a different animal. There's no you're not really dating per se. Like you're like you're not taking girls out to nice dinners. Like you're partying or whatever. You know? You're not taking them out to Jackrabbit Slims. Yeah. Yeah. To get a, you're Douglas, definitely not buying them a $5 shake. Hell no. To get a Durwood Kirby burger and a Douglas Sirk steak. Nice. Yeah. Martin and Lewis. Or it, uh, nice, nice. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I agree. Great scene. Uh, that's something I noticed too. Now, like as an older person watching it, like how much fucking chemistry they have together as two uh, actors. Um, one thing I noticed too is the uh, the Willis scene where he has that long tracking shot of him going to his apartment, you know, through the back fence, oh, and uh, which is cool. It's good camera work. Fantastic. But one thing that yeah. I like, and, and I've read this online too, and it, it reiterates when you watch the movie is how you get to this entire history of Butch and his family having been in all these wars. You know, you got World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, and Butch doesn't have a word to speak of. Like, you know, he's a he's a young man in the late eighties 
early nineties, there was the Iran war and there was like the cold war, but there's no like call to arms. But this day was Butch's war. Like this day was Butch's like day out where he has to like the watch motivates him. He has a chance to lose his life. He goes into the battlefield with, against these gangsters and emerges through a crazy fucking day as victorious and still alive. Unlike a couple of his, you know, his great grandfather or grandfather that passed away. So it's like, he wakes up to war on the TV that Fabian's watching. And so that, nice. that's his day. You know, that's his, that's his day in the trenches. Um, and just like his, his grandparents before him, like he had the one day where he had the chance to lose his life and emerged this time unscathed with his watch. So I, I like that kind of like that being his day of war um, is a cool like little storytelling device. How much do you think, how much do you think of that is, is premeditated by Quentin and how much do you think is just like, I think that's very purposeful. I think that's very yeah. purposeful because of the way he tells the multi-generational war story by Captain Coons earlier, Christopher Walken, you know, and then he wakes up with a war movie on in his hotel room. So isn't it, isn't it a little early for explosions in war, you know, and like yeah. he comments on it. It's got to be purposeful. Like there's a reason yeah. he wrote that on the TV screen and wrote the dialogue about it. Uh, I think very purposeful. I mean, he, you know, Tarantino, he's good. But me, it's like. <laughs> that's a good one. That's <laughs> a good t-shirt. Yeah. Eh, you know, Quentin Tarantino. He's good. He's good. So I got the uh, the drive to the, the Tony Rocky Horror, up to the foot massage, to the Ezekiel 2517. To me, if you could – Steve, I have – and you, you, you'll probably be responsible for this. In my will, there will be multiple things that my people that survive me will be required to do. Uh, a lot of them uh, have to do with movie references. Um, so uh, the pulp, there's certain scenes that I want played like at my funeral. Like I want to, I want to screen clips from movies at my funeral and make everyone there watch them, uh, and and th- that's going to be one. Like from the second the car starts and he, and they're in the car talking about hash bars all the way up to where they shoot the gu- shoot Brett. I, that that's going to play at my funeral because I like that uh, Operation Kino from Inglorious Bastards. The whole scene where they the basement scene, unbelievable scene. Uh, a couple of scenes from La Big Lebowski. I mean, there's a bunch. I'll have it in my will. It'll be set up. But, but the point being, like. For my money, man, like movies don't get better than that. Like it, you, these two guys ride in the car, like you, 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 you're almost like a fly on the wall for their conversations. And quite literally, when they're in the hallway, yeah, upstairs, you are. You're on the window. Yeah. You are, but in, in the in the conversation upstairs, when they're doing the foot massage thing, they get to the door. It's a little early. It ain't quite time yet, as Jules says. The camera stays there in front of the door, pans over, follows them as they walk over to this side room and keep having the conversation. Yeah. And then come back to the main plot. It's almost as if the characters themselves leave the main plot of the movie to go have a side conversation. Then come back to the main plot of the movie where we are. It's just fucking masterful, dude. I mean, it's unbelievable. It is, and uh, that's why your brain knows this stuff. Like you might not be able to like articulate it. But when you're watching a movie like this, like your brain recognizes things. And it's like, damn, that was good. <coughs> so it didn't get better to me than that. Like Ezekiel 2517, the whole speech. Dude, him drinking all of the Sprite. Dude, staring at him. You talk, uh, dude, you talk about a power move right dude, there. Dude, it's like, and I mean, that, that's it's such an amazing performance, dude. Like, it, it, the way it builds and goes from I'm your friendly, keep chilling, keep chilling. See, you caught you boys at breakfast. What you having? And the way it just builds and gets more malicious. Cornerstone of yeah. any, dude. He's just it's fucking with them. I mean, he's totally fucking with them from the very beginning, just like playing psychological mind games with these guys before he fucking kills them in cold blood. Like, right. Uh, it's unbelievable and like that was when i was like i'm watching something else entirely you know like that when when he's like shoots the guy and says oh i'm sorry did i break your concentration like dude i mean it's unbelievable and i I like i can't articulate it without 
saying it's unbelievable over and over because that's just how it is. But uh, man, what a what a scene and what a performance! Special shout out to um, one of the Arquette brothers. Do you know about this? The Robert Arquette, who plays the fourth guy in the back room, who you, in the third story, you see his perspective. Yeah, with the gun, the hand cannon. Yeah, he's he's Robert Arquette. He's one. He's like <coughs> David Arquette's brother, uh, and he's like one Rosanna Arquette's um, brother. So the four Arquette kids are actors. He's now Alexis Arquette. He's a trans. So he's a, now a trans woman. He actually passed away a couple of years ago. But um, I love his performance. Like he's kind of my sneaky six man because it shows him against the wall and he's listening to Jules deliver the speech and his reactions to it are hilarious. Like uh, he's like, like he starts giving the Bible verse speech and he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like you can tell his like, he's like, uh, I just love, I love his face. He like, he's in shock and awe that that's happening out there just we the audience are. So that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Um, Die, you motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah. It's the best. Yeah, he really lands that. Did you, uh, did you see the size that gun he fired at us? It was bigger than him. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, oh, yeah, you go into a restroom with, like, a, a loaded gun. Can we do, like, I mean, you're, three minutes on the gimp scene? So I just want to know, like, what... That's my, le- that's my least favorite scene from the movie. Really? Why? So, like, it, it's funny that you say that, like, you think... Yeah, this is just the, like where we differ on, on certain things. Like, you think that the Esmeralda and Butch scene is like an unnecessary pause when I think like the gimp scene and getting fucked by a pawn, like a pawn shop owner and his brother cop is like an unnecessary odd delay in the scene. I think that's, I think it's necessary because we need Marcellus to get into a situation that is horrendous and we need Butch to save him. So that way they can go about their separate ways. And I think like Tarantino is telling just a weird LA story. Like, hey, I live in LA. This is Tarantino. There's a bunch of weird fucking people live in the city. And there's a bunch of weird right. CD underbelly that is beneath the shiny exterior. So I'm going to tell you these weird stories you haven't seen before. Yeah, you've seen the boxer that threw the match, but you haven't seen it where they like find each other accidentally in this track with like after and end up in like the basement of this like creepy pawn shop. You know what I'm saying? It was a different take. Yeah, I hate I, uh, I, I, I just I challenge you to tell me the purpose of that as real to see like plot wise I told you it was to give it an outside look at another character outside oh, of but that doesn't help doesn't move the plot forward though ah, it's not all about the plot man you gotta look around and enjoy, smell the flowers a little bit Sam nah uh, eh. 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 okay. yeah, it's the journey it's about the journey man it's about the end man like it's it's not about the yeah I don't know I don't know what that character was but uh, so Gim scene what's the like so they I have, don't know all right I guess I got a question are, is that a real thing the Gim thing like, what are you asking yeah, me like, was that guy like I, I well you know you know Sam <laughs> but like do people subject themselves to that willingly or was that like Gimp there against his will. Like I'm, I'm very interested to know what. This that is why situation. I'm having the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 let's 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 bounce this back and forth. So, uh, I'm gonna go on a limb and say, you are aware of like the, the S and M and submissive and all, all dominant submissive that that shit, right? No, like the Fifty Shades of Grey shit. No. Yes, you are. Yes, I know. Yeah, I, I yes. I was going to say, so, I've got like furry handcuffs on right now after this podcast is over. Right. 
Yeah. Um, a, he has a get mask on right now, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He unzipped it to do this podcast. <laughs> but he's like staying. I mean, it was in the middle of the day, and this gimp is in, in the a basement box. of a pawn shop clothed. in a box yeah. in yeah. a leather, all leather one piece. That's, that's what I'm like. Uh, <laughs> so I think this guy was probably is just another deviant that is part of the scene that whatever the Zed and, and uh, whatever the owner of the pawn shop, they're two, they're brothers, apparently those mm-hmm. two guys. And uh, they just uh, kind of dominated him mentally and kind of turned him into, you're not a game of Thrones person, are you? I am, man. You, <laughs> you told me well, you know, it, the first time I watched it was with Mason, uh, a mutual friend of ours. And we both made it like 20 minutes in and we we're like, nah, like I'm not going to watch this show. And then I told you that, and you said, dude, you've got to watch this show. This is like a show that like society watches. You have to be a part of it. I'm like, ah, I'll wait a couple seasons. And then I, I, I joined in when everybody was like, I don't know, whenever they were talking about the Red Wedding thing, I think is that's when I started watching it. Hmm. So you know the, the reek, you know that whole thing? Yes. Like I when they that. Be, beats that guy down? Yeah, it sucks. Uh, I think that's what they do to the gimp. Like he's like a dominated person to the point where he's like essentially has lost all human characteristics. They keep him in a fucking cage. But like what? Like how do they feed him? Like does he shit in there? You know, like what? You know what I mean? Like I just don't know. The, I want to know more about the mechanics of this whole gimp thing. What are the details? And, yeah. How, I mean, how like, does the whole gimp thing work? Throw that out on Reddit see what happens. Yeah. 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 That'd be great. Uh, my inbox would be full of very like awesome images, I'm sure. But uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't know about that. And and I, you know, like these guys, like I get their creepy red. Essentially, you want the deliverance thing. Like I get that. Right, like right. you want the whole like. So I, I'm. It's not like in today's society. There's so much ridiculous shit out there that the the rape part of it like doesn't even. It's not even super graphic anymore. That's true. <laughs> like no, it, it was honestly. At first, when I saw it, I was like, holy shit, like anal rape, like gay anal rape happens in this movie. Like, that's like the most intense shit I've ever seen. But now it's just like, oh, you know, it's a fucking Tuesday night, gay anal rape. You know, says a lot about you where quote we me on that. Says a lot. Yeah. Quote me on that. Yeah, you can put that on a t shirt. Yeah. Says a lot about where we've come <laughs> with our movies and standards, doesn't it? It does. That's another um, metaphorical conversation for another podcast, Steve. Who you got for the Leonardo DiCaprio overacting award? I got Angela Jones as Esmeralda Villalobos. Ah. I think she's doing too much. I just don't like that scene, as it's clear. You made it clear. Who's your, uh, I'm gonna, I'm who's gonna, your overacting? I'm going to let it play out uh, real quick. Let me know. Hopefully you can hear this okay. I can cut in. <laughs> that. <laughs> I've been shot! I've been shot! <laughs> That's who that is. Yeah. That's Linda Kay. She's wearing like <laughs> you found yeah, her. She was. It's awesome. She's wearing like mom. She's wearing like mom short jean shorts. So like yeah. she's had a she's had yeah. a notable history in the in the field of, of movies. If you'll indulge me for a moment, in, in nineteen eighty seven, mm. she was in my best friend's birthday. She played ex girlfriend. In nineteen eighty nine, she was in a flick called Shocker. She was the woman at the top of the stairs. And ah uh, yes, an Oscar winning yeah. turn. And, the, uh, the fact she climbed those stairs was really an accomplishment in all women's cinema. 1992, she played shocked woman in Reservoir Dogs. Huh? Right? Very similar yeah. character she, in this movie. And then shocked she was yeah. literally titled <laughs> Shot Woman. 
her pinnacle performance in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> no more work after that. That was the last. That's the last input on her IMDb. So she left. You know, I'm. I'm let's let's get her in vertical limit and let's replace her with the Sherpa guy. <laughs> Dude, that's exactly what I thought when I watched it. I wanted to put it on a loop. I typed into I typed into YouTube Pulp Fiction shot woman, and I was literally surprised that somebody had not yeah. clipped four seconds. That's for you to do that scene. And this is your contribution. 30, yeah, this is your minutes. this is your journey. <laughs> this, this, everything's been leading to this. <laughs> oh man, that would have thirteen thousand views. And, and every thirteen thousand, one of those people you you should invite to something and hang out with them because those people would be your your brethren. Oh my god, uh, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah, it's good. My I best friend's wedding, uh, Tarantino's first movie he wrote. So that makes sense that he would cast in his. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so she carried it around, man. I wonder how that works. If like they're friends off off camera, or if she just kind of like. Probably. I assume in, she in was like part of the. Maybe she worked at the video store, hung out at the video store. I don't know. <laughs> um, what was Kathy Griffin's like role there? Like, was she anybody when that happened? No idea. Like, or she just like a. Yeah. I don't either. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's weird to see like somebody that's like such a like a, a figure now. Like, every, no, you wouldn't put her up, and somebody be like, oh, I don't know. I've never seen this person before. Pretty much everyone knows who she is at this point, mm-hmm. and uh, it's funny that she plays like this nonchalant character. And then it even said like Kathy Griffin playing as Kathy Griffin, so she didn't even have a name in the movie. Like she was herself. Yeah, I, yeah, I haven't thought a lot about that honestly. That's an interesting point, though. It's an interesting point. It's an interesting um, point. <laughs> most quotable quote. This is one of those movies. Just put the entire script in this category. I mean, it, there, there's not a line of dialogue that's wasted. There's not an inflection that's misplaced. There is every fucking line is quotable, uh, and we quote it in daily life to the point where it's probably annoying. I mean, there's there's so many different quotes you can use that are just from the very. It's an interesting point example. I love. I mean, exam- also think about example, how many of those are Jules man. quotes. I love that one. Yeah, yeah. example. Uh, it's it's fantastic. So, but but if you had to pick one, what do you got? Garcon means boy. Yeah. Yeah. The, like the, you like the, the yeah. waiter there. I like that one, man. Everybody knows what? that. Come on. Every time you go to – I can't. I don't think I've ever gone to a restaurant with you where you haven't gone, Garçon, coffee. And then, yeah, sure. every Literally, I was on. just in South America at a coffee shop and did, did not do, do that. that. Oh, I no, might have done at, that. You're a little – Oh, yeah, you probably did. Yeah. You've had too much wine. I'm going to finish this bottle probably tonight. Um, that's good. That's good. I've got uh, my man Jules. I'm a mushroom cloud layer motherfucker, motherfucker. Every time my fingers touch brain, I'm super fly TNT. I'm the guns of the Navarone. In fact, what the fuck am I doing in the back? You're the motherfucker who should be on brain detail. We're fucking switching. I'm washing the windows and you're picking up this skull. Ain't going to say that, man. Yeah, you got to be careful around here. There's some, there's some land, yeah, there's some landmines in the, uh, the Tarantino catalog. Good job but, but that. that was smooth. It makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. I like. Uh, uh, I love that. He explodes. I love. I do believe Marcellus Wallace, my husband, your boss, told him to take me out and do whatever I wanted. Now I want to dance. I want to win. I want that trophy. So dance good. Napkin throw in his lap. That's amazing. amazing. I got a couple. I got a couple. I, wonder, I don't. I should have practiced these beforehand, but I didn't think about it. Uh, is your uncle? Is your uncle Conrad and Angini millionaires? Well, your uncle Marcellus is, and I'm confident that. If Uncle Conrad and mm-hmm. Aunt Jenny 
were here today, they'd furnish you with a whole bedroom set. But your Uncle Marcellus Wallace is happy, happy to, to do. do. More than happy to do. I'm an oak man myself. <laughs> How about you, Jimmy? You an oak man? Oak's nice. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Dude, I mean, there's so many. It, it's You can't even like... It would just be an... All I want to hear from you is, you ain't got no problems, Jules. I'm on the motherfucker. Go back in there, chill them out. And wait for the cavalry. And wait for the cavalry, who will be coming directly. And he just repeats it right back to him. It's so good. Oh, you happy that, now, man. motherfucker? <laughs> I mean, it could just be yeah. us doing now, just doing Pulp Fiction quotes for literally the next hour. Because that, that, that's what it means to people that watch it and kind of have like a bond over it. Uh, you know, and he, yeah, he's there true. in the bathroom and he's like washing his hands like, what the fuck would you do to this towel? <laughs> he goes, <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, give me your most, give me, give me your most like off-referenced. Oh, like the like, one that no one quotes? Uh, yeah, man. Like I would say the lava one is a good one. That's a funny one. The lava. Uh, man. So you're going to think about it for yeah. too long. It'll come to me. As yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Soundtrack, obviously huge, um, was a, a, a number one selling, top 20 selling soundtrack of that year. And my dad had the soundtrack. It repopularized all the songs, it, man. Like, you know, you got, first of all, you got Misery Lou, the <laughs> surfing song, Dale and his Deltones, the that song uh, kicks off. And then the music immediately changes. The dial turns, like the radio changes, and then it goes to Cool in the Gang's Jungle Boogie in the middle of a credit sequence, which is the first time I've ever seen that before. So, like, even the the way he uses the music, Son of a Preacher Man, uh, when Flowers on the Wall, yeah, I love that girl, song. Girl, you be a That's, woman. That song was in my wedding. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's every song means a lot to that moment. Uh, in the Uma Travolta dancing scene, Uma was like, we can't do You Never yeah. Can Tell by Chuck Berry. Like, this is a weird song. It's not going to work in the scene. And uh, it was reported that Quentin looked at her and said, this is perfect. Trust me. And then she said she saw it in the movie and was like, I can't fucking imagine any other move, any other song playing at that point. And I agree. It's like amazing. Like, these songs are amazing. If you ever just want to chill, listen, crank up the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, play it all the way through. And uh, it's just a really diverse set of songs from an era of music that Quentin's clearly fond of. It really fits those individual moments in the movie. Mm. You feel like you can't use those songs outside no of way. Yeah. Pulp Fiction either. Yeah, because they're so just inextricable with the movie. You know, when I hear these yeah. songs, I immediately think about the scene in which they are. It's the way it's going to be. Do I. Uh, what do you got? Things you don't like. Uh, uh, my number one is Tarantino acting in his own movies. I do not like him as Jimmy. I think he's not, he's not a good actor. And I, I get that that's like, he's doesn't think he is. I don't think, but I just, just cast someone else. Like, you know, I think the movie's a little better because of it. If someone else is in that role, like some other like bit player from that era, like fucking Matt Dillon, like put Matt Dillon as Jimmy. Uh, yeah. You know, whoever, like <laughs> just put an actual actor because you know, I think like, he just when he shows up in his movie, he shows up at the end of Django and Chain too. Plays like that weird Australian guy. Like it's just weird. Oh, it's weird, yeah. and, and, and I just I never like it. And I'm like I wish someone else was in this. Also, that Jimmy scene is pretty tough. Like the whole you know like uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, just the outside yeah. in front yeah. and said you know eh, that's even at the time when I watched it, I was like mm, that's a, it's kind of funny, but like mm, like I, this is this is tough. You know, <laughs> God, I'm probably not going to say this uh, out loud much. 
Um, but, I think he's just flouting that he can say it because he's like saying it directly to Samuel L. Jackson. Right, right, yeah. Uh, so, and, and, like, I'm allowed to. It, it's, and, and I, I don't like to get caught in the whole, like, what do we view this as now? But, uh, and, and so here's what's fair Jimmy is not a good dude. Like, in the movie, he's a guy that helps criminals commit crimes. He is not a good person. Yeah. So it, it's completely reasonable for him to use racial slurs because he's not a good dude. Like, uh, so I, I'm, I'm with it in the confines of the movie, but that's also just kind of a tough, it's hard to enjoy that scene. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, so I, I don't like that. I don't like that scene. I wish someone else is in that role and it sort of harps up the kind of the N word stuff, the Tarantino N word. Yeah. Like, well, he always takes on really intense, like, uh, one liners, like, like, uh, controversial topics, I guess, because he did in Reservoir Dogs, the whole opening scene is him talking about Madonna yeah, like, a virgin. like a virgin yeah. is about her getting fucked by a person with a big dick and he sits on that for six minutes so that's Tarantino he talks about it the these are his it is Tarantino but it's interesting that like I, I agree with you I don't think he's I mean he wouldn't say that he's a good actor I wouldn't think it's definitely not good enough to like I mean I get well as I say this I also admit that it's my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie and it's the first scene of the movie so I guess how much did I really not like his acting? No, I guess didn't impact it that much because I kept watching it. And I still like it, but yeah, but yeah like I would be interested like to know what those roles were. I like it in spite of that, but I, I would really be interested to know what some of those scenes could have because they're well written. Like I right. like Jimmy's character. Yeah, I and, like everything about Jimmy. Yeah, I like and, the predicament that he's in. Right. I like that it's eight o'clock in the morning. I like that he's in his robe. I like that he drinks gourmet coffee. Mm-hmm. I like that he's married to a black nurse. Mm-hmm. Like I, th- I thought that was an interesting, like, huh, cool. And he lives in the valley, and he's friends with Jules. Like, what's going on with this the dude's character and his life? I don't know. And I would have liked to have known more. And you know what I want to know off. more about? I want to know more about uh, the party that the wolf's at. It's like soiree. Yeah, and dude, like he's, I, he's in like I, a hotel room. Thing. Yeah, like what the fuck is going on there? It's eight a.m. Everyone's wearing black tuxedos, and like they're putting on what appears to be a fashion show. And like, uh, oh, dude, I love when he like writes like Vincent White, Jules Black, one body, no head, and underlines it. Like that's like what a what a note. Oh, dude, it's a fantastic character. I know. Yeah, Winston. What what else you got? What things you don't like? You got any other things? Uh, you know, I, don't I like really didn't like the deleted scene. I, I feel vindicated that Quentin hated the scenes too. Because uh, I remember the first time I had seen it, I think, I don't know when it w- they would have played this in an original copy, because it wouldn't have been like on Netflix. Maybe no. I was streaming it online or something, but like the deleted scene was in, it was the original version, I suppose. And I had to watch it on a DVD or something, probably. Like it was on a DVD I that I had. Then maybe it was the one that you were talking about in the beginning of the podcast, mm-hmm. the slide out, because I, I can picture that in my mind. That was, so what, have... that was what it's from. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, that's when I had it then. And I remember watching it. I was like, ugh. Like, this is awful. Like, the video I, camera? I the, the whole, video like, camera, the like, Beatles versus... backstory, awful, man. Yeah. And it's just, like, that's a good example to me of what you were talking about where that doesn't carry the plot anywhere. I don't really get that much any... I would, I guess, like, you're getting new information because it's the first time you're getting to experience Mia. But I love that, like, at to that point, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, it's always stuck with me. I don't know why. When Mia is talking to the microphone, she says... <clears throat> she'll be down in two shakes of a lamb's tail and her tongue mm-hmm. does this flick 
I don't mm-hmm. know if you know what I'm talking about, but I do. Oh yeah. The, oh the come very, on, dude. I'm a student of this fucking movie. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. That flick of the tongue and tail. And you don't know anything about her until you see a slightly dirty heel of her foot come up. And then the two of them are sitting there with the neon glow of Jackrabbit Slims. That is the perfect way to introduce her to the movie. And when they put in the video camera, and I don't mean to harp on it because they cut the scene out, so they obviously realized this as well. But it just drew on it way too long, and it like took uh, a lot of the oomph out of her character to me. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It demystified agree. it. Yeah, the, the first time you see her face is when they pull up to the restaurant – in yeah. the convertible. You know, I can't in the believe Malibu. she was 23 in that movie, Sam. Yeah, yeah. That's wild to think about. Yeah, one of her first roles was uh, at boarding school up in the Northeast, apparently. Kind of was like a, a goody-good, really, like apparently. That's why she was so shocked and awed by the dialogue, the profanity, and the Gip stuff. Like, that's right. why she was like, yo, I don't know if I can, like, uh, I don't know if I can do this. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a, a pretty interesting, interesting scene. And you like the meme? You're, you're, I'm sure you, I don't know how up on your memes are like the John Travolta like looking for the speaker meme have you seen that oh yeah, yeah. when he's like stumbling around the, the yes. room like Vincent oh, it's like it's on the bar or it's uh it's on the wall next to the two African fellows or whatever I, I think saying. it's one of my most used memes you're like kind of disheveled and you don't know where to go or what you're doing mm-hmm. that's a good one that is a good one um, Travolta doing a great "Hey, I'm high on heroin" impression that whole time. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I'm about that uh, that whole performance. I, I like all the performances of this movie except for a few, but um, it's good stuff. So, do you have any other things that keep you up at night? This movie uh, we talked about the what's in the case. We don't think Vincent probably uses submachine gun on the fucking counter when he goes to the restroom. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, a it lot of people say sense. that it's Marcellus Wallace's gun. Because he is going to get donuts and coffee for the two of them that makes on a stakeout. That makes a lot more sense, dude. But, like, Marcellus has a handgun on him because we see him fired at Butch. So, and Vincent doesn't have a submachine gun because he comes out of the bathroom without it. Like, so, I don't know. I, I just don't know whose gun we're expected to think it is. Like, or if they just brought one between the two of them. And then Vincent went to take a shit. And then while he was shitting, Marcellus left the gun there. I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't think that either of them would leave that there considering they're waiting on someone essentially to show up. Like that's their whole purpose of being there is to wait on him to show up. And if like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> How don't did he that. not hear John Travolta come in to his apartment first? Or Bruce Willis. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. And how did, dude, that apartment's ridiculous by the way. I remember when we were like we were watching the movie and like him coming into that apartment. It's very spacious, a lot more so than I would have thought from the outside of that apartment, thinking that it's like connected to a bunch of other apartments. Also, like where are all his neighbors that day? Yeah, he like literally fires a submachine gun like without a silencer and sets off the alarm and then like takes sixty seconds to wipe the shit off and get out of there, and no one even runs in there. Yeah. Although, I don't know. If I heard what I thought to be submachine gun fire, I probably would not run no, into that place. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I agree. It, that What's seems a little weird. What's the story about Fabian? We think, How did Butch meet her? I don't know. I, I do like the whole, he's, got, he's a really angry guy. And I like the whole, he's like a mean boxer that has like this gruff attitude. But for some reason, this weird little yeah. French chick. 
just like calms them down, like you know, like turns them into a little, you know, kind of a little uh, softy. I like that. I like that aspect of it. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they meet. I, I imagine they meet at a bar. He's smoking an unfiltered red apple cigarette. And, uh, and she, you know, like comes and sits next to him. And he like tries to talk to her. And she speaks French back to him, uh, pretending like she doesn't speak English. And he like kind of knows a little bit of French for some movie he saw. And she thinks that's funny. And then that's it. That's essentially that's, how, that's my little that's essentially how Rocio and I got, got together. So, yeah. Oh, nice, dude. Hey, Cheers hey. to you. Yeah. Uh, Marcellus, do we think he forgives Butch for what, like, fully forgives after yeah. what Butch did? Okay. I would say so. I mean, you got to put things into perspective. Marcellus doesn't strike me as a guy. I mean, that was an envelope full of cash. Okay. Granted, that's what he paid Butch. I don't know how much he put down on the line, right, for him to to lose the match. A lot. That's why That's why Butch got the payout. So the, the way this worked was Marcellus pays Butch, Knows he's going to throw. So he, Marcellus puts a fuck ton of money on Floyd winning because he knows that right. Floyd's going to win. And so, so not only does Marcellus lose the payment to Butch, he loses all of his money as well as all the people he tipped off right. in that match. And then Butch, because all of the, you know, basically Vegas odds were insanely in favor of Floyd because Vegas probably knew that Marcellus had paid Butch off, then bets the, you know, the under on himself. And he has all, he's like, how many bookies you laid on? Every single one of them. So basically, like, Marcellus loses a fuck ton of money and Butch gets an insane payout because of Yeah, the but odds. I don't believe that Marcellus, like, so Marcellus strikes me as a guy of many, many talents. Well, and it was fucking him over. He's a, he's proud, a proud guy, guy right? But he's he was like, a, it, it was clearly a hit on his sort of like, his weird honor. No question about it. But you're, the question at hand is if he forgive, forgave him. And if you're getting butt fucked by, some hillbilly motherfucker in the basement of a pawn shop and the worst person you can imagine in life comes up and saves you out of that predicament. Hitler, Hitler, you, you were, you were being butt fucked by a dude in a basement of a pawn shop and Hitler I saves would. you. And at the point, at that point, you're going to tell Hitler, uh, the, the Holocaust was cool. Okay, I'm not going to say that, but I wasn't at the Holocaust and any, any, any personal grudge, <laughs> Any personal grudge? <laughs> what, a, what a take! I wasn't at the Holocaust. Any personal grudge that I have with everybody, if he saved me from that situation, I I would be fine with it. Uh, any outstanding things, whatever. You're saying you would me. forgive you would forgive any personal, any personal grudges. Grudge. You don't you don't hold, you don't hold any personal grudges against Taylor. You're just like <laughs> good thing. Like a hundred people listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit! All right, all right. So. Um, are the cops not immediately called on Vince and Jules when they exit the diner after they stop the robbery? Like, are, like I mean, I guess everyone's still in awe, but are, are the cops not called? Hey, two guys with this very distinct features wearing these very distinct clothes just fucking like stopped a robbery and have like two handguns they tucked in their bed. You know, I don't know. Like, I guess it's the whole LA crime. Like, you know, like uh, cops are too busy. You know, like there's a sort of like wild outlaw aspect to it kind of western aspect of these gangsters but it's you know i don't know i'm like i think practically when i watched it when they left after they like casually leave they had that dramatic moment where they tuck in their guns in front of the door and i'm like someone's calling the cops right now (laughs) like as they're like slow walking to the door i always thought about the person that lived next door to brad right so like you know how the guy comes out of the bathroom and he's like die you motherfuckers and shoots what like six seven shots 
and Brett. 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 Yeah. And Mrs. Bo Travolta and yeah, Samuel. The, and it goes the right through the walls. Yeah. I'm curious who's on the other side of that wall. Uh, that, goes, that went right into the apartment, apartment building. No, no, it's a hallway. It's the hallway. How do you know that? Think about it geographically. So they are, there's the front door, and they walk to the right of the front door down a hallway to go talk more about the foot massage, come back to the front door. We know they're standing on the wall where the front door is when that guy shoots at them. To the left of the door. To the left of the door on, in the inside of the apartment, to the right of the door on the outside of the apartment, which is that hallway, which is where they go talk about the gotcha. foot massage. So it's like where the stairwell is. Right. Hopefully nobody's walking in the stairwell. Yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully not. You got any more things that bother you about this movie? Things that you were like, nah, I don't yeah. know about that. All right, where do you rank this guy? Uh, Reservoir Dogs number one Reservoir for you, Dogs. what I understand. Sounds like we need Dude, to do a Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs, Dogs podcast. And it's it, like crazy to me that like he made 50K it. off of that and that that was like his big go-to movie. It makes me like it more, but. Well, it was his first movie. I mean, he, he, was, he had no bargaining power. The fact that he even got funding to make it was insane. Uh, I'd, play, I'd put Pulp so Fiction at number three, money. Um, Reservoir being number one and Glorious being number two. Which is a completely different type of movie. All right. I, went, I, I really need to watch Jackie Brown again because I used to say that Jackie Brown was my favorite because that was the first movie, even before Pulp Fiction, that made me really like Quentin Tarantino as a director because of mm-hmm. I mean, Robert De Niro's character in that whole movie, Samuel Jackson interacting with the two of them. The whole movie itself uh, was like kind of the description you were given about Pulp Fiction. It was nothing I'd ever seen before. I had no other movie to compare that to. And uh, it stood out to me. Mm. But I have that being said, I haven't watched it probably since the last time I watched Crash. I don't know. I need to, I need to go back and rewatch that. <laughs> you got to revisit. Jackie Brown's still good. It's on, uh, it's on uh, Netflix. So is Pulp Fiction. Everyone go watch it. Pulp Fiction is my favorite uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. It, 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 to me, is the most Tarantino possible movie. And if, you, if, if, if someone said, hey, do I, what do I need to watch to understand this director? This is what I'm pointing to. Um, I think you get the, the whole package in one movie, uh, and it, it might not be his best movie. I think it is, but you can debate that with me, but I think it's the most Tarantino movie. Uh, although Hollywood is climbing up there in terms, I love that fucking movie. It's the most like Pulp Fiction movie he's made since Pulp Fiction in terms of sort of the hangout yeah, aspect. And that, that actor duo um, and is pretty strong. Oh, dude, it is. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, just go, you got to see it and then we'll talk about it. Uh, so, all right, man, it's been fun. Go, uh, go get a big Kahuna burger. That's that Hawaiian burger joint. I hear they got some tasty burgers. Get a pack of red apples, uh, unfiltered. Smoke yeah. them up. Sewer rat tastes like pumpkin pie. Sewer rat may taste like pumpkin pie, but I wouldn't know because I don't eat the dirty motherfuckers. Uh, and and let's uh, let's do it again, man. So, congratulations to you. Congratulations to me for a successful podcast. And have a good one. Hey, same to you, Sam. Take care, buddy. If I were walking in your shoes, I wouldn't worry none. While you and your friends are worried about me, I'm having lots of fun. Counting flowers on the wall, that don't bother me at all. Playing solitaire till dawn with a deck of 51. Smoking cigarettes and watching.